Certainly, as always, it's a great privilege that we have to come together and to offer our praise and our worship to God. It is my desire this evening that the things that we study together will be beneficial to us, will, will warn us, will encourage us, and that you will take the things that uh, from our study tonight and to study them out for yourselves and put the application uh, where you might see necessary. As you can see this evening, our topic is a crisis of faith. In my notes, I say that people are bored. I'm not sure that's the best way to describe it. I heard a young political commentator three or four years ago at the, at the time, she'd have probably been 31 or 32, and she said something that to me was really profound for someone her age, and she said, the problem with my generation is we are afflicted with affluence. We have so much, we can do so much, we're overstimulated, and people have become bored in their efforts to find things that please them. Apparently those glasses aren't going to work there. The reason I bring this up, the purpose for that is that that is invading Christianity in the church. Faithful people, or once faithful people, become bored with scriptural worship. And it's happened over and over again. People also expect almost everything to be entertaining. They expect school, their jobs, teachers, sermons, everything. They want to be amused. The Bible does not teach that entertainment is evil, quite the opposite. As we read in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 18, it says, Behold, that that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him, for it is his portion. And we see in 1 Samuel 16 verse 23 that as um, King Saul was, uh, that he would call David in to uh, play his heart for him, to soothe him. It says, And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And so we see that this type of entertainment in this case soothed him and helped him. But the problem with being in our society with entertainment overload is that we receive so much stimulation, or as Cain talked about distractions this morning, that it no, no longer pleases us and so, or pleases our society. And so we see it just continue to escalate uh, as far as what people consume or desire or uh, participate in. 
This amuse me attitude has taken over news and politics um, and education. And we as society are apparently terribly interested in celebrity gossip. Uh, probably been two or three or probably a couple of years ago that I became aware of the term uh, social influencer. So if you don't know what a social influencer is, I think it's probably primarily Instagram and Twitter, but people that say things, post pictures that draw people in and, and get a lot of following, and that is the kind of society that we're living in where people are always looking to be amused. So I guess the question is, or you might have, what does this have to do with the gospel? And I believe it has everything to the, do with the gospel and the church because statistics will show that people have grown bored or very apathetic towards church. The constant need to be amused has invaded that which is holy and sacred. Why are so many bored and apathetic when a church, the congregation of believers, teaches the truth? Why do they not want to attend and be a part of that? You know, the, the faith, the doctrine of the church, the scriptures, these things the apostles and the first century Christians died for. And people often think that, that to come and to listen, to participate in worship will cause them to die of boredom. Why is that not enough for people anymore? Why do we have brothers and sisters, members of the Lord's church, who have implemented musical instruments in worship, women leading worship, praise teams, dancing through the aisles? It's to be amused. This is not the things that God has asked for us in our worship to him. I want to remind us all to always remember that we do not come here to be entertained. We come to this place to worship. We come to this place to encourage our brethren and sisters. We come here to give honor and praise to our King, the one true God, the creator of the universe. The assembling of, these, of, our, of saints is for us to gather collectively at the feet of our God. We, or you, are not the audience, God is. In 2 Timothy 3, we'll read verse 1 through 5. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teacher having itching ears, and they shall turn away their hearts, their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. That sounds an awful lot, lot like 21, 
uh, the 21st century Christianity to me. The time has come when people will not endure sound doctrine. The time has come when people have turned from the truth. The time has come when people turn their hearts to fables. And the purpose of this lesson is to remind us, as I said in the beginning, to encourage us to be vigilant and to be a benefit to one another as we put these things to practice and consider these things in our own lives. I want to talk about some things that I think can lead to this. There we go. Love for the world. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Having a love for the world can cause a lot of problems. That really should sound like an understatement. Having a love for the world can be the problem in itself. It takes our focus off of God. And when we no longer are focused on God, then it makes, us, makes it easier to give in, in to temptation. In fact, it makes it inevitable that we will give in to temptation. And, and if we go down that road long enough, then we will consider that we will eventually forget all things pertaining to God as far as having any importance in our life. There's something that has concerned me for a long time. Not only the secular world, but the contemporary Christian world has put the Lord's Day under attack. It's been under assault. It's become somewhat irrelevant in Christianity. The Lord's Day used to be honored and respected. Businesses once closed. People didn't work other than essential uh, activities. People gathered to worship. They fellowshiped with their brethren. Now many stores, many, many stores are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And since they're open, that seems to be a good time to go shopping and to do the other things that you want to do that rather than attending worship. We see younger and younger children and their families playing baseball, traveling on weekends and playing and practicing on Sundays. And that's, I mean, these kind of leagues, they play year round. They do this all the time. There are precious young people spending their time learning to swing a bat or perfect a jump shot or throw a football. And their parents are failing them to teach them about God and his grace and his mercy. And so when we have a love for the world and we lose sight of God, then it boils down to or evolves into selfishness. When we seek something to amuse us or to fill us, and we're not seeking that at the, in the right place, then we end up looking for all of these activities, all of these things that we can do, and then we do them because I want to, so I'm going to. If I want to play golf on Sunday instead of going to church, 
that's what I'll do. If I'd rather go fishing than worship with my brethren, that's what I'll do. And we see that over and over and increasing in greater and greater numbers. If our desire is to teach our children to play, to fish, to do these other things, if that's greater than our desire to teach them how to live according to God's word, how to instill in them the faith that is so important to us, then we have serious problems. Let's be careful that we do not get caught in those kind of traps. Because so many people do these things on Sundays, you see some churches that have now offer Friday night and Saturday night services. And this is to accommodate people's desires. Acts 20 verse 7 says, And upon the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. How important is God and his word to our world and to Christians when they begin to do these kind of things, to move services, to fit our schedules, rather than to try to honor God? Why did the first century Christians meet on Sunday? Was it by accident? Was it convenient? Early Christians, the earliest of Christians, were the Jews who were accustomed to resting on, on the Sabbath on Saturday and working on Sunday. So it, for them to then gather on Sunday was a very big change. But we have the example here that that's what they did. Sorry, that's a little small. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 9. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment, was, uh, his raiment as snow, and for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angels answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye. For I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before, before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. And did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And, he came and, held, and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. The disciples gathered on the, first day of a week, on the first day of the week because of this wonderful event that had happened on that day. Christ, who bore our sins on the cross was buried, and he arose on that day. And the disciples believed that that event was worthy of observing and remembering. And I believe that that is worth of observing and remembering throughout all of the ages to come. 
the Lord had risen from the dead. And yet false teachers and wolves seek to deceive by falsely teaching and persuading that Sunday is not the first day of the week or it is not that important. In Luke 24, verses 1 through 7, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of Christ, found not the body of Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Luke is clearly writing of the same events that we read in Matthew. Now continue in Luke 24, 13 through 21. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus drew near and went, to them, uh, went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye, are, that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast thou not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and all our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, and besides all this, Today is the third day since these things were done. It appears that the Bible, the Holy Spirit, through these writers, has gone to some lengths to make sure that we're clear about what the first day of the week is and when Christ arose. The Bible clearly defines it for us. And because of that, and because of that event, and the example we have, it should be of great importance to us all and to those that seek to please God. And the love of the world contributes to a crisis of faith that we continue to experience in our society, <coughs> in our churches, and in our families. Are we really too, too busy too distracted, too desiring of being entertained to gather to worship on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day. I want to look a minute at the lack of conviction by Christians for the Bible. This is an older uh, a few years old Barna uh, survey. I had difficulty finding this kind of information compiled somewhat like this. One of these is way off now, but I'll uh, 
correct that in a moment. 14% of all Christians believe that the Bible is not totally accurate in all of its teachings. Almost all, uh, almost half of all Christians believe that Satan is nothing more than a symbol of evil. 33% of Christians believe that if they are good enough, they can earn a place in heaven. 28% of Christians believe that Jesus was a sinner. That's shocking to me. Only 32% of Christians believe in absolute moral truth. 33% of Christians do not read from the Bible on a weekly basis. And this bottom one is the one that is now unequivocally incorrect from what I could find. It is 35% of professing Christians do attend regularly. It leaves a very large gap on people that do not. When a large number of Christians do not believe in the Bible or that it is totally and absolutely accurate, that Satan is just a symbol, that we can earn a place in heaven, that Jesus was a sinner, that there is no such thing as absolute moral truth, and they don't read their Bible or attend worship on a regular basis, does it make you wonder why we're raising up a generation of people who are uninterested with, in Christianity. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. When we don't believe that scripture, then what does it really matter if we study the Bible? If the Bible is viewed by Christians as nothing more than, you know, some pretty good ideas, some helpful ideas, and they do not view it as the all-sufficient, inspired, perfect, infallible Word of God, then we have problems. If we do not believe that the Bible is the authority for our learning, our correction, our encouragement, our manner of life, and our way of thinking, then there's no wonder that there is a crisis, a large crisis of faith. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 21. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. <coughs> Prove all things, examine everything carefully. Examine what we see, what we read, what we experience, examine our hearts, what comes out of our mouth. Do all this through the light or the lens of God's word. Hold fast. I don't know what kind of picture that puts in your minds, but to me, anytime I read that, it's somebody that grabs on to something that's going to save them. You got caught two miles off the beach in a hurricane and there's a pole and you're going to ride out the storm because you're going to hold fast and you're not going to let go. And that is the only way that we can make it through the storms of life, through what comes at us, is to hold fast to that which is good. Hold fast to God's word and flee evil. 
The Bible has endured 2,000 years of criticism and attack. Attack after attack has been brought against it, but it still stands as the Word of God. Just because the world does not believe that does not make it true. What is amazing is how many people, how many Christians, question the Bible, but, but believe everything that they read in newspaper, or on the internet, see on TV. I can't know all of the reason that the world and Satan has had that kind of success, but I think a lot of it goes back, it goes back to different things. Church, uh, uh, prayer and all of that being removed from public life. But I think a large part of it too is evolution. Whenever you really study that and the theories are presented as fact and then if, if you've been around long enough, you see that, that Christians go, well, there must be a way to make it fit together because all these PhDs and these people that spent 12 years in school studying archaeology, geology, different things, they can't be that dumb. They can't be that wrong. And so you end up with things like the day-age theory and stuff. Well, if you believe the day-age theory, which says, you know, that to, to, to put uh, Christianity or the Bible in with evolution... If you believe that, what they have done is then say, well, you know, God took, you know, that, that first day was an age and all this, and, and they absolutely destroy the truth of God's word with that kind of thing. Do you really believe that the Bible is the absolute authority for your life, that it is the inspired word of God? If it is, if you believe that, then shouldn't we be opening that Bible every day? Parents, shouldn't we be digging in the scriptures, learning how to save our children from the things that they ha are going to have to endure? 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What I want to get from that is study. Study, dig into God's word. A lack of conviction for the Bible leads to apathy, leads to boredom, leads to wanting to be amused some way. If you get to the point that you believe that God's word is not totally uh, accurate in all sense, then why would you want to listen to someone speak from the pulpit or study the Bible with them whenever you don't believe when you no longer believe that those words are from God. Acts 17, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. What did they do? They searched the scriptures daily. They were being taught about the kingdom of God, how Jesus had been... Uh, slain for our sins, what were they doing? What they had then, the Old Testament, the, the, the scripture, the schoolmaster that leads to Christ. And they were searching these daily to understand and know that the people that were teaching them and preaching these things were in fact in accord with God's word. If your desire and your enthusiasm for God 
and your love for the Lord isn't where it needs to be, I want to tell you that God has not moved. God has not changed. A more exciting worship service with light shows and bands and dancing in the aisles is not going to change anything. It's not going to change your desire to please God. It may suffice to amuse you, entertain you, but that is not seeking to serve God. Do you feel like you're slipping? If you do, search the Bible daily. Increase your knowledge, increase your love of the Word. And that takes work. Whenever we struggle, then we have to work harder. Whenever we become less focused than we should be, then we have to work harder. But it's worth it. The struggle is always worth it. I want to look at leadership or lack of leadership in the home and how that contributes to all we see. So I want to ask, do you think that Christians raise their children differently, in general, do Christians raise their children differently than non-Christians? I think most of us would say, oh yeah, for sure. However, in another Barna-conducted survey, the Barna group suggested that after monitoring both Christian and non-Christian homes, that the way they raised their children was indistinguishable. According to their research, less than 40% of Christian parents taught their children that there were moral absolutes. Now listen to this. Parents, listen to this. And only 30% of Christian parents felt that the salvation of their child was critically important. Less than 30% felt that their child's salvation was, less, was, was critically important. God thinks it's important. The father sent his son. The son came to this earth and wrapped himself in flesh, lived a perfect life, offered himself a perfect sacrifice, poured out his blood for the salvation of your children, for the salvation of the world. Barna's conclusion was that believers do not train their children to think or act differently than anyone else. And when our children are exposed to the same influences without much supervision and are generally not guided to interpret their circumstances, their opportunities, the things that go on around them, when they're not guided to, to interpret those things in light of the, God's word, of the Bible, then it's no wonder that they grow up to not care, to be bored, to be apathetic, to be involved in everything that this world has to offer and care nothing for that of Christ. The biggest factor in whether or not a teen remains faithful as they become a teen or later teenage years has to do with what they witness at home. If they see their mother and father pray on a regular basis, they are more likely to be interested and desiring to pray on a regular basis. If they see their parents reading and studying the Bible on a regular basis, they are much more likely to read and study their Bibles as they grow old, older. If they see their parents' enthusiasm for attending worship, 
then they're much more likely to be enthusiastic about that as they become adults. If they see their parents discuss the scriptures with them, with friends, with brethren, then they're more, more, much more likely to want to discuss the Bible and how it affects our life and how it directs our life with their friends and their acquaintances as they grow older. Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Notice that word, train. How we look at the world, how we respond to life and the things that go on around us, how we talk with our children about those things and how to re to react. The Bible is our guide for this every day, and we are to train them, diligently train them. Read this scripture this morning, but we're going to read it again from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 through 8. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I commanded thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind, bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thy, thine eyes. Frontlets is an interesting um, word to me. The, common uh, the, the modern term does not mean what this does, but back then it meant an ornament on the forehead. Or another interesting definition a shield between the eyes of a horse. God wants us to continually discuss his word and his laws and his precepts with our children. He wants us to shield them with them. He wants us to, orna uh, to uh, for that to be an ornament to them. If you're riding on the tractor with your son or walking down a road or your daughter, you're not necessarily carrying a Bible and you start talking about something and, and you can flip over and read it. So how do we do this? We must hide the word of God in our own hearts so that we can pour that into our children so that as they face the things they must face in life, small or large, as they begin to grow and deal with these things, then we can pour God's word into them. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principality, against power, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against wicked, uh, spiritual wickedness in high places. We have, we're blessed with a lot of small children here now. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So when these children are born into our families, into our homes, as they grow, they will enter spiritual warfare. How can our children fight this war if we don't equip them? How can they fight this war if we don't train them?
Ephesians 6 verse 4 says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I understand how busy sometimes we can be to making a living. There are different seasons, different times that pull at us in different ways. But dads, this scripture is speaking to you. Fathers, bring your children up in the care and love, the admonition, the encouragement, the warnings of the Lord. There's a lot of things that parents are responsible for in making a living and taking care of the day-to-day things. But this is a responsibility that fathers are to fulfill, to bring them, train their children in the nurture and care of the Lord. It does not matter how busy we get, how busy you get. This is a responsibility that God has given you. Often we think we just don't have enough time for God. And it seems that we're always pressed for time, always busy, always doing something. Time is money. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 says, I ran past it, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Solomon tells us here that there's a time appointed for everything. And I want to suggest to you today that no matter how busy life gets, there is time for worship. There is time for our family in our own homes. Being together, studying together, playing together, working together. There is time to spend with our brethren so that we may know one another better. And there is time to worship. And that time for all of these things is now, if you want to serve God and train your children. First Corinthians 11, verse, three, uh, verse 33, Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Hebrews 10, verse 22 through 25, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider, let us consider one another. To provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assemblies, the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We should desire to make time to encourage our brethren. And we do that by being here. We should desire to set the example of the first century church. We should desire to do as Christ said whenever we take of the Lord's Supper to show his death until he comes. We have been asked to remember our Lord. He did not save our physical lives, but he saved our souls from eternal damnation.
And we, the least we can do is honor him on his day. I don't even know if politically, politically, political correctness is the right term anymore. Things seem to change all the time. But our life is ever-changing. Our society is continually changing. And things that whenever my children were small, being born in small, I've talked to them about it. I tell them, you know, I was like, we won't ever have to deal with that in Plainview, Texas. It's nice to be young and know everything. It turns out I didn't. Uh, and I think the world's much different than whenever my children were in high school. We are told by the society around us, by the world, by many we come into contact with, that we should be tolerant and accepting of any type of sin. Not only should we do that, but we should embrace it and celebrate it. They say you have no right to judge others. To speak against certain sins is bigotry. Those are pretty amazing comments. It's amazing how often those concepts are tossed about, how often you hear those over and over again. Tolerance, acceptance, embrace. You get the impression that our level of tolerance now is the standard to tell how good a person I am. My tolerance of sin, that is. And if I'm to believe the society around me that being intolerant of sin, it makes me a bigot. But what I see when I open my Bible is greatly contrasted to these ideas. It's the very opposite. I don't see the idea in God's word, the instruction in any form, to tolerate and accept and embrace or celebrate sin. Sin is unacceptable. We're human. We make mistakes. We fail. I sin. You sin. But that is not to be celebrated. That is not to be embraced. That is to be overcome. We are supposed to be intolerant of sin. Let's not be fooled by the world. Not accepting sin as normal and good is not being bigoted. It is not being narrow-minded. It's searching God's word and placing our life and our reaction and our thoughts in line with that word and obeying commands that are far greater than myself. They're for my good. They're for your good. So that we may experience lives of happiness and joy and holiness. And I'm going to tell you when the storms of life come and you have God's word and you have your brethren there, then you can still live a life of joy and happiness. John 14 verse 6, Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What's another popular thing? There's many paths to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way. He said, 
Those other things don't work. Buddha, Muhammad, Hinduism, or just being a generally good person and worshiping nothing, that is not the path to God. That is not the path to our Father. According to Jesus, to be right in his eyes, then I must believe in him. I must submit my life to his word, and I must use it to to direct my paths. Was he being politically correct when he taught these things? No, Jesus was very countercultural to the, in comparison to the um, religious leaders of the Jewish people at that time. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Jesus exposed their error, their political correctness within the day of, of the Jewish uh, leadership, the, how the Pharisees and those uh, led the Jewish people. He exposed this to the point that they ultimately crucified him. So we need to be careful not to get up, caught up in this idea that we should go along to get along. To stand on the truth of God's word is not bigotry, it is not hatred, it's love. It's not being small-minded. We are commanded to love all people. But that does not mean that we embrace and celebrate sinful behavior. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And we need to continually remember, remember that and to make a stand. I want to point out that no matter what struggles people have in life, no matter what they have run headlong into, we should have compassion and love for sinners. And when we have the opportunity to set the example, to teach, to guide, then we must do that, speaking the truth in love. Romans 6 verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are saved uh, live any longer in, uh, therein? So what if I said that whatever you want to do, whatever kind of lifestyle you want to involve yourself in, lie, cheat, steal, I can't judge. It's okay. I'm not going to accept that. That's your, 
that's how you've chosen to live, I'm going to accept that and, and not say anything. What if I tell you that Jesus isn't the only way to heaven? There are churches that now um, allow all manner of deviant behavior, people that are engaged in that, pursuing it to be in leadership roles in their pulpits. Churches are allowing much false teaching just to please people, to fill the roles. Is that really what Jesus stood for? Jesus lived and taught counter to the culture. And when our culture does not follow the principles of the Bibles, we also should be countercultural in our lives and in our speech. We must stand for what is true and right, always telling the truth in love. If we don't love the world, if we have a true faith, a conviction for the Word of God, if we have spiritual leadership in the home, if we make the time that we should for worship, if we make the time to spend with our brothers and sisters in Christ in our homes with our feet under one another's table where we can know each other and appreciate each other, if we don't try to go along to get along, and we don't embrace and celebrate sinful behavior, what will we look like? I believe we'll look like the first century church and that I think, I believe the world will take notice. I believe that we will, if we let the Bible guide our lives and direct our paths, that we can save our children from eternal damnation and that faithfulness can reach to our generations. It can reach to our friends and our neighbors and if we live that way and we are earnest in that, then we can have results or effects that will resound throughout all of eternity. Do you love the world or do you love the Lord? Are you convinced, absolutely convinced that the Bible is true, that it's the inspired word of God? Parents, are you leading your children, training them? teaching them, leading them in, down the path of righteousness and setting an example that they can see on a daily basis? Are you making time with your family for the Lord? Are you standing up for that which is holy and good? If you're not doing those things, today is the time to make that change, to make another start. If you have obeyed the gospel and you feel that you're somehow distracted or not focused as you should be and you believe the prayers of your brethren would be beneficial to you, we would encourage you to, to come and make that known. If you've never obeyed the gospel and you want to do that and start your walk with Christ, come confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, repenting of your past sins, and be buried with him in baptism, putting on Christ and rising to walk a new life. If there's one that, need, that seeks the assistance of the uh, congregation, we ask you to come and sit on the front row as we stand and sing.